All right. Uh, good evening. Uh, let me to welcome you if you stepped in a little late to uh, our 11th large group of the semester for RUF. Uh, my name is Nick. I'm the campus minister for RUF. This semester we've been working our way through a series of relationships of all kinds, and so far we've tackled friendship, the church, employers, sexuality, uh, singleness, and dating. And last week, if you were here, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and determined that God made marriage to spread his image across the earth and uh, did so with two distinct helpmates that become one flesh. But that still leaves us, I think, actually with more questions. How are a man and a woman distinct in marriage? We said they help one another, but how exactly do they help one another and why do they do that? And in what way does marriage itself image God? Right? We said last week that childbearing uh, in marriage is a major part of God's plan to fill the earth with his representatives. But what happens when those children grow up? Have they fulfilled the role? Uh, do marriages simply exist to create more marriages? <laughs> Or is there something intrinsic to marriage itself that is involved in revealing God, in males and females revealing God? Tonight's passage, written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Ephesus, which is a little tiny place in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. Is, well, it wasn't that tiny, tiny at the time. It was actually a big metropolis. Um, you know, Paul writes this letter to this small church there, and as God inspires him to do so, It's going to reveal what not even the author of Genesis could have fully known as God's plan of redemption would uh, unfold in the coming years. We're going to see that even the first marriage between Adam and Eve before there was ever even sin in the world or a need for a Savior was ultimately actually pointing to a Savior, pointing to Jesus, that ultimately uh, marriage is about him. And we're going to unpack essentially Uh, those two things. We're going to unpack the distinct roles within marriage, but also how those roles depict God and his love to a watching world. If you're, you know, a note taker, I've, I've kind of uh, boiled these down into two points. It's the distinctive drama of marriage. We're going to look at that first, the distinctive drama of marriage. And then we're going to look at the deeper destiny of marriage, the distinctive drama of marriage and the deeper destiny of marriage. Let's read our passage. And then we'll, we'll look at it and find out. I'm starting in verse 21 because uh, that phrase, while it's ESV translates it as being a part of verse 20, it can actually stand alone. Punctuation isn't the same as in Greek as it is in uh, English. They don't have periods, so you kind of have to guess what sentence uh, certain clauses go into. So it could be read, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, comma, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so let's look at our first point, the distinctive drama of marriage. We're going to do that by looking at verses 22 through 24. Look at verses 22 through 24. It should be up behind me. Here, Paul says that marriage, essentially, is a play, a drama, if you will. In, in which the husband and wife, they just simply play roles. One way of reading this passage, in fact, is that marriage is a casting call of sorts, where God is a director seeking characters to act out a narrative that we call the gospel. The husband plays the role of Christ, while the wife plays the role of the church. As such, Paul goes on to say the husband is the head of the relationship, and the wife is called to submit to that headship. Now, let me start by acknowledging an elephant in the room to all of you. I am a dude who is teaching this passage. I don't really know what it's like to read a passage like this as a woman, but I can imagine it probably feels a little offensive being told to submit in everything to a husband that's the head of the operation. What's more, there's plenty of history of bad faith readings of this text, usually a contingent of men who love to use this passage to demean women as a whole and to order them around, uh, that they have the final call. They're the heads, right? I mean, I've heard, honestly, with my own ears, men explain this passage to essentially mean that if there's ever a tie in anything you want to do as a married couple, the man gets to decide, right? Uh, that a woman has to do whatever the man wants because he is the head of the relationship, I gotta say, it's not a good look, <laughs> right? If misogyny is what this passage permits or at worst maybe even endorses, I don't blame the large number of people who question the Bible's veracity or its uh, authority, right? So uh, here's the thing. It's a good thing that that's not what this passage is saying, <laughs> right? That it neither permits nor endorses uh, misogyny. And there are really three factors that typically cause us to stumble over what this passage looks like as it's played out. And it's this. Uh, usually we get stumbled over the, the male-female dynamic as a whole, just like submitting in general. Uh, we, get, we have an eclectic allergy to submission. Like just our culture as a general, we, in general, we don't like the idea of submitting not just to a husband but to anybody. And then three, uh, we stumble over what it means for a husband to be the head of a marriage. Well, let me first, let me tackle the first of those. Let, let me call your attention to verse 22 to start. A wife is only supposed to submit to her own husband, right? That means women are not generally submissive to men. They are particularly submissive to a husband. Ladies, uh, if a man tries to tell you that you should be submissive to him, what I purport that you should do. I encourage you to respond, sir, I'm out of your league. And, uh, and with that attitude, so also is every other girl, right? That's what you should say to him. Uh, Paul's clear on this point, and it's worth noting that in verse 33, Paul explicitly instructs 
uh, each party, even within marriage, to attend their own role in that marriage. Right, Paul, uh, look at verse 33. Men are not told to remind their wives <laughs> of their obligation right, to submit, nor women husbands of their obligation to be like Christ. It's, you're not the, the keeper of your wife or your husband's role in the marriage. You are supposed to attend to your own role in the marriage. So, uh, you know, uh, particularly uh, dudes uh, in the room, right, even, even if you get married, uh, this passage is not licensed to remind your wife that she's supposed to submit to you. Uh, we're going to get to what that means in a moment, but I just want to say, probably not a good idea. Um, Maddie, how would you take it if I said, remember, you're supposed to submit to me? Probably not well, right? Uh, and you'd be right to do so. Uh, Paul, said, Paul does not tell us that we should be you know, the policemen of uh, one another. Each one of you, Paul says, should attend to his own duty. Second, right, the second thing uh, our allergy to submitting, right? Even when it comes to husbands particularly, we, we need to be careful not to read like our 21st century American doubts and values into Paul's first century letter. Right? We live 400 years downstream of a nation, you know, or 200 years, 250 years if you go the 1776 route, right? Of a nation founded upon the idea that no one gets to tell you what to do. Nobody gets to tell you what to do. Freedom is the most unassailable of American values. And submission, then, would be the greatest affront to all our sensibilities. But here's, here's what I'll ask. Should it be? Right? Are you just standing downstream of a culture of 400 years, 250 years? Or uh, are you able to think through what, it, what submission really means? Here's what I'd submit to you from the Bible. The word submit, hupotasso in, in Greek, it's used here, and it's used 39 other times in the New Testament, and it's viewed positively in every single instance that is used. Right? The word submit, uh, it's used in 1 Peter 5, saying that it's good to submit to the elders of a local church. Luke 2, good that Jesus submits to his parents as a young boy. Romans 13 and Titus 3, good to submit to governing authorities. Uh, Titus 2 and Ephesians 6, good to submit to our employers. Hebrews 2, good that the creation submits to our care. And the other 30 or so references speak to the goodness of our submitting to God, obeying his laws. Right? Here's what I would say, that the Bible at the very least, God at the very least, believes submission to be a hallmark of the Christian life. Not just to a husband, but to many different people. If you have a problem with submission as a whole, you actually have a problem with how God thinks about uh, how we are to live. Now, the question is this. Why does God feel that way? Why does God feel like submission is such a good thing to employers and to churches and to, and to parents and to you know, governing authorities, all these, all these different entities? Well, I'd say it like this. Uh, because our greatest example didn't despise submission. Uh, I think Philippians 2 is up. Uh, we have Philippians 2 here. Yes. Uh, this, it, we, are, we learn, is at the heart of the, the Christian gospel, right? What it means that Christians believe good news is that Jesus, who was God himself, became a servant, right? Look at this passage, uh, that, that Jesus, not clinging uh, to being God, right? Not clinging to equality with God. He already had it, and he decides to empty himself, 
and takes the form of a servant. Now, that God would serve anyone is actually kind of mind-blowing, right? That God creates creatures and then serves them is kind of mind-blowing, right? You, I mean, think about like anything you've ever made in your entire life. You wouldn't, you wouldn't serve it. Right, like you don't create a like a a picture. Like you're the closest thing that's ever happened to that. Maybe is you like did some finger painting and your parents like hung it up on your fridge and you were really proud of it. But you don't like you don't bend over backwards to serve things that you made with your own hands. But God actually does this. Now that should be mind blowing. But it's not enough that God just became a servant hearted man that he took on flesh. Jesus, this passage says, humbles himself in obedience to his father to the point that he died for our sins. That we might trust that sacrifice and be restored to relationship with God and call him Lord. This is why this whole passage begins with the command that we all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? To go back to Ephesians, right? This is why I included that first heading. It's that it's uh, the, re- the, the gateway for Paul to even talk about marriage is actually the idea in general that when we know Christ, we will not find submitting to one another that difficult. Right? Our allergy to submission vanishes when we realize that Christ himself submitted himself to us. And what do we do with that? We treated him as poorly as we possibly could have. Right? It'd be hard to imagine a worse way to treat a person than to crucify him and have him bleed out on a cross. We've got to disabuse ourselves at the end of the day of the notion that submission is inherently bad. Uh, To submit is to die to oneself out of love and respect for another. And Jesus happily takes that on, that mission on. Let me say that again. To submit is to die to oneself out of love and respect for another. Ladies, that's what it means for you are to do for your husbands should you have one one day right? You're to love and respect him following his lead, even when it's hard. Look at verses 26 through 27, right? I say that, I say that it might even be hard sometimes because Paul likens the experience of a wife in marriage to sanctification. If you haven't heard that big word before, sanctification, it, it basically just means that it's, uh, it's the Christian way of describing the process of how we become more and more like Christ more and more like Jesus, being made righteous and perfect, right? Justification declares us to be righteous and good, and justification is us actually becoming righteous and good. It's worth noting that sanctification is hard, right? We're continually purged of other loves that compete for our reliance upon God, and uh, we are convicted by the reading and the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments that Paul refers to, in verse 26, right? Even if a husband exercises his headship well, right? If he is sanctifying his bride, then we should assume that submission won't be easy, right? That it won't feel like sunshine and daisies all the time, right? Even if a husband is doing the headship thing well, right? Now, that begs the question, what's the headship thing, right? That third piece of the puzzle that we usually get tripped over Maybe submission isn't so bad, especially if Jesus does it. Uh, but, you know, I got to say, like, I don't like the idea of husband, comma, CEO, right? Um, I don't like the idea of him being able to boss me around and tell me to do stuff. Well, let's, let's look at what, what headship means to another. 
Uh, first, I would say this. Um, I've said it a couple times now. But the passage begins with submitting to one another. Right? So even, even if the wife's role is unique, and it is, in the sense that she is supposed to submit to the husband, we have to acknowledge that at the very least, he is on some level supposed to submit to her too because everyone is submit, supposed to submit to everybody, right? But in the drama of marriage, the casting call of the husband is unique. It's different than just submission. Paul ascribes a different role to the husband and he calls him uh, to the role of Jesus as the head of the church. Look at me at verse 25. What does it mean for him to be the head of the wife as Jesus is the head of the church? He unpacks it here. He says, The husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the drama of marriage, the husband, his casting call is one of sacrificial lamb. Right? If you, if, you know, you took a casting call and it says, like, you know, wanted somebody to play busboy or whatever, this one would be like wanted someone willing to die. Someone willing to put themselves on the back burner. We see in this verse and also in verses 28 through 30 that the role of a husband is the exact opposite of those who would twist this passage. Remember all the people, remember the hypothetical people and the real people we talked about earlier who talk about a husband being able to tell a wife what to do and guys being able to just generally tell women what to do and all these things. Like this is the exact opposite of powerful overlords of women, right? Uh, a lot of people read a passage like this and they immediately think of, um, oh gosh, uh, Handmaid's Tale. Have y'all ever seen Handmaid's Tale, right? Like they even like quote this passage from time to time uh, to like make a point about what this passage is saying. And I would say that in order to misquote this passage is really to misunderstand who Jesus is and why he came. The man is given greater responsibility, right? He's, he is given greater responsibility. His role is not identical to his wife's, but that responsibility is to empty himself, right? Empty himself as Jesus does for his people, caring more for his wife, Paul says, than his own body, right? To put it in the crude terms I've, I've referred to, if there's a tie break to happen in marriage, right? If you're going to play rock, paper, scissors over who's going to get their way in a marriage, you just can't come to a compromise, right? Uh, I would agree on, like, I would agree with the people who say it's the husband's call, but here's the catch. It's the husband's call to exercise his right to give the wife what she needs, to die to himself, to seek her good at whatever cost to himself, right? Yeah, sure, you, you have the tie break. Hus- you know, guys in the room, if you end up being married one day, yes, you have the tie-breaking call, and you're supposed to exercise that right to make yourself lesser and her greater. That's your responsibility, right? It is her perfection, her relationship to the Lord, her life that is the priority over one's own. Right? This is the distinctive drama of marriage, friends, that a man and a woman are called into loving service to one another with the man bearing the greater responsibility to serve. I, uh, uh, it's funny because as our culture may run, as much as our culture may run from this narrative that like marriage isn't completely equal, that there, there is some roles to be played out 
Uh, it's funny that like this idea that a man has the greater responsibility to die to himself, that that just keeps coming up <laughs> in, in movies and in TV and in, t- and, and in books and things. Uh, we can't actually get away from this being one of the most loving displays, one of the most amazing displays of love that writers and poets can conjure up, right? Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie A Quiet Place with John Krasinski, right? Uh, John Krasinski's character, a.k.a. Jim from The Office, if you've watched that show, right? There's these, like, uh, monster things that can't see, but they can hear things, and they literally just completely devour you if you make even a little bit of a noise. And when his two kids are in danger, when his wife and his family are in danger, in order to protect them, he gives out this, like, blood-curdling scream, to make sure that the beast comes and kills him instead of his family. Sorry, spoiler. Also, if you haven't seen Endgame, pops up there too, right? Uh, sorry if you haven't seen that, but for the record, it's been out for like forever, so you've <laughs> got to deal with it, right? Uh, I will say there's a certain movie that's been released recently where a certain uh, agent uh, dies for his family, right? Uh, sorry, spoilers. Um, sorry, it's been out for a while. Uh, Right. I, all I'll say is this. Uh, I, I'd say this too. It, and it's not just it's not just movies that are making use of this. It's uh, it's the opposite is seen too. Right now, I've I've made mention already in this you know in our series that dating is not the same thing as marriage. I, I'll own that and I mean that. But if you don't make that distinction, right? This is why Olivia Rodrigo is so upset with uh, jo- uh, what's his name Joshua Bassett. Like, this is why she's so upset with him, right? Listen to this. This is her words about Joshua Bassett. You betrayed me, and I know that you'll never feel sorry for the way I hurt. Yeah, you talked to her when we were together. Loved you at your worst. I loved you at your worst, but that didn't matter. It took you two weeks to go off and date her. Guess you didn't cheat, but you're still a traitor, right? I would say, for the record, he didn't cheat. He's not a traitor because that doesn't count. But if you think of marriage and dating as the same thing, Right? If you think of it as being the same thing, that you really are committed, right? Uh, this song plays on the idea that for her to respect and serve Joshua at his worst and for him to leave her, it's the height of treachery. Right? It, it draws her ire. And us as an audience, that's why everyone sings it in their car. They're like, yeah, that guy, he left her. How dare he? Right? When we see the opposite of this happening, we love to see it happening in movies and TV shows where a man assumes this role. And when it doesn't happen, I would say, we are more than willing to lash out at him, right? Uh, just because he, you know, left a, or took someone's red scarf or whatever, right? That's a Taylor Swift reference for people who are paying attention, right? Like, whatever it is, we say, like, it feels so wrong. It feels so wrong for a man not to, like, assume this kind of role, and here's what I'll say, too. Um, even as I talk about how wrong it feels, uh, I know that some of you guys have experienced a lot worse than Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, scorning you or Joshua Bassett, some dumb teenage romance, right? Some of you have seen, uh, have felt the pains of this not coming to fruition in divorces and in uh, dads who didn't show up and uh, in, you know, infidelity uh, deadbeat dads, too absent to care. Maybe they neglected your mom or they neglected you or your siblings. Maybe, honestly, maybe they even abused you. And some of you have had, uh, on the other end, you've had demanding mothers, 
right, who walked all over your father instead of loving, respecting, and serving him, right? Many of us have seen this played out in very, very poor ways. Even as I talk about all these ideals, you think, Nick, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not any marriage I've seen. Some of you have had great uh, parents. I'm thankful for that. But some of you have also seen some really hard things. And I would say I'm really sorry about that. Uh, but at the very least, here's, here's the beauty of this passage. It's saying that it shouldn't be that way, right? That gut instinct that you have that something was wrong with your childhood, that, th- that your parents didn't love you like they were supposed to, that your mom and dad didn't operate like they were supposed to, that they didn't love each other, right? What this passage is saying is that, like, it valid- I validate you. I see you. God is saying, I see that that is not the way that I drew it up. That's not the way I intended your parents to act. This is the casting call, right? This is the script that the Bible gives. And, the, and that means that uh, in a greater way than nothing else can, right? Uh, it's not just like a happenstance. It's not just uh, random that you had a hard childhood. It's that it's wrong. That's not the way that it should have been, right? Uh, without, without a God, without this passage, you know, the truth is, like, why are we upset? You know, it's just a completely random set of occurrences. Who knows what love is? Is it just like emotional, you know, synapses in our brain firing that th- tell us that things should be? What I would say is that, no, it is that it's a spiritual reality that your parents should have played this drama out in front of you. Your father giving of himself, thinking of himself second, always putting your, your mother ahead of everyone else and anything else. And she, likewise, should have uh, come behind him, respected him, loved him, served him in that calling. Marriage, uh, you know, is supposed to validate that ache, that longing. But, right, sometimes it doesn't. And I would say this, even even the best marriages uh, also really don't completely satisfy that longing for what this passage is talking about, Right. As great as, as all those depictions, as great as all those movies are and, you know, the, the, the songs that make us scream and, you know, in the car or whatever, I would say this, that marriage is still pointing to something beyond itself. That not even marriage is all, not even the greatest earthly marriage is all it's cracked up to be. Uh, if marriage is, in fact, a playing of roles, then its true purpose lies beyond the marriage itself. Right? What is it pointing to? What are, the, what are the roles alluding to? What's the real story that it depicts? Well, this brings us to our second point, the deeper destiny of marriage. Second and last point. It's but a dress rehearsal for the real thing. Look at me at verse 31. Look at me at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I hope you recognize this verse. Uh, It's a direct quote of the passage that we looked at last week in Genesis 2. God defines the very first marriage in this way and all subsequent marriages with this verse that uh, two become one flesh. In marriage, God says, you know, where there are two, now there are one. Now there is one. And Paul calls this a mystery in verse 32. Now, you should ask Right When you read that, especially given the passage we looked at last week and we unpacked it, why is it a mystery? There's not actually much mysterious about it. In fact, it's kind of vulgar and obvious what he means by two becoming one flesh, right? 
we would even say uh, the things that aren't obvious, emotional and spiritual uh, intimacy, like those things are even included in this. It's not that unclear how a man and a wife become one flesh. But Paul calls it a mystery because, as I said, not even Adam and Eve know what we know now. Sorry, not, not even Adam and Eve knew what we know now. Let me at verse 32 again. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now we know, says Paul, what that first marriage revealed. Right Now we know what marriage in general reveals to us, and it's that it is Christ's love for us. That that passage, the two become one flesh, is really not just talking about a marriage, but actually pointing to when two, a church, right, another body, will become one with Christ himself, united as his bride. This is why the Bible consistently pictures the end of our present reality in a fallen world as a wedding feast. When Jesus comes back, he comes back as a groom for his bride. Uh, I uh, ask these passages to come up. Look at me at Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Pull that up. Yeah. Revelation 19 says this. Uh, John on the island of Patmos has a vision of the end of the world. Uh, not just the end of the world. There's some other things about it. But at the end of the world, he says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude uh, after Satan is thrown down out of heaven, he says this, like a roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Later in Revelation 21, 1 through 2, we get, a, we get another picture of a renewed earth as the consummation of the marriage that that is talking about. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. That marriage points beyond itself, right, is uh, the overarching message of Scripture. That uh, Christ's commitment to his church is actually the ultimate point, And that uh, even Jesus says there will not be giving or giving away of marriage in heaven. Because, right, we will be married to Christ. That at the end of all things, that's what we're hurling for. Uh, and I, I'd say, you know, what that means is to, at least two things, two things uh, and by way of application to you guys about uh, what it means for Christ to have a commitment to the church and that that to be the center of marriage. Something assumed about marriage, right, then is that it's not a contract, but a covenant. What do I mean by that? Uh, right. What do I mean by marriage not being a contract, but a covenant? A contract works like this. If you do your part, right, you have two parties, and you say this, if you do your part, I will do my part, right? If you give me X amount of money, then I do X amount of work, or uh, you're going to do X amount of work on this project, and I will do X amount of work on this project, and we will be mutually beneficial, right? And if you fail to meet said terms of a contract, then the contract is null and void, right? You can, you can back out of said contract, 
Right? A covenant, uh, the way that the Bible talks about a covenant is that it's a promise. Right? Wedding vows are promises, not about what you, what the other person's going to do, but about what you promise to do. Right? Uh, this is why, you know, old vows, not new ones, not ones that people write themselves that all suck. Sorry. Uh, but they do kind of suck. Um, just kidding. If, you know, if your parents did their own vows, great for them. Uh, or you know somebody did their own vows, great for them. Um, but here's what I'll say is even, even new vows are going to play on this and are going to get this right. It's going to say this, you know, something to the effect of like in sickness and in health. Like I take you no matter what happens to you. Right? It's not about what, the other per- what you like about the other person. That's why the, the horse vows are like, I promise to always eat all your enchiladas or whatever. It's like, that's not a, that's not a promise. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't mean anything. Uh, and everyone's, by the way, everyone's laughing at you when you, when you do those. Uh, sorry. Um, am I on a tangent? Yes, I am. Uh, the point here being, right, that, that at the center of what we're talking about is that marriage, like between Jesus and us, is a covenant that he loves us in the wrong, like uh, without us earning it. There's no contract involved, but also that our marriages ought to, ought to operate the same way. Right, that it's a promise that you make. Um, that's why you know somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, like when do you when do you know uh, that someone's the one? It cannot be like them being particularly pretty or fun or God sending you a sign. Because here's the thing: if if you get a different sign, or they stop being lovely, or they stop being interesting, or they stop being a value add, or whatever it is in your life, then the contract should end. Right? But if you've entered into a promise where it's not about them, it's about you, then the truth is they're the one when you say, I do. The second thing I'd say about uh, what this means is that Jesus loves you with that kind of love. Right? Our marriages are supposed to resemble that, but it's also that they resemble a true love that you already can have in Christ. He isn't holding out for some better version of you. Right? He isn't looking for some better option out there. Right? He isn't interested in the good people. He wants you. He's committed to you. Right? Whether you've believed in him for a long time or this is your first night ever thinking about maybe loving Jesus, the truth is that Jesus, a long time before you ever were worthy of it, and for the record, you never will be, that he commits himself to you. Romans 5 says like this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You can't earn your love from Jesus because he doesn't have a contract with you. He has a covenant. He loves you while you're still unworthy. He makes a promise with his own blood. Like that is what you were created for, right? Marriage can't ultimately give you that, right? A spouse can't be there forever, can't love you in all the ways like that, but Jesus can all the way down. Implicit in this passage, right, is that if you try to make marriage more than what it is, right, more than a play that points to the real thing, you'll crush your spouse, right? You'll demand that they always affirm you, that they always meet you, that they always do everything for you, that they always, they never criticize you or they never, they never, you know, back down. They never, there's, there's never any problems with them and your spouse can never live up to that. The perfect spouse that you're looking for is Jesus, Jesus is the real thing. Let's pray.